Introduction and Unit 1 of You Be the Judge, Demystifying the JFK Assassination, an online course. What ought we to believe about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963? The first investigation of the crime by the Warren Commission in 1963-64 determined that Lee Harvey Oswald killed the president and that there was no evidence that he acted in concert with others. Since then, however, more than 2,000 books have been written, 95% of which argue for the existence of a conspiracy. An investigation by a congressional committee in the late 1970s also supported the probable existence of a conspiracy, as did a sensational movie by Oliver Stone in 1991, which blurred the difference between fact and fiction. An American cultural flirtation with conspiracy does not mean that there was one in this case, however. After nearly 60 years of inquiry and debate, not one item of evidence has conclusively disproved the principal claim of the Warren Commission's report which the vast majority of critics of the Commission have never read. Indeed, many subsequent investigations have demonstrated the likely accuracy of the Commission's most controversial finding, the so-called single-bullet theory, sometimes dubbed the magic-bullet theory. Every claim of conspiracy has been countered by evidence against the claim, at least as persuasive as the original allegation. What, then, are we to believe? This course attempts to answer the question from an historian's eye view. Using the physical evidence and witness testimony gathered over half a century, we will view the body of evidence through the methodologies of an historian. This is relatively novel because few historians have analyzed this case, most of them because they believe that Oswald's guilt has long been made clear. For historians, evidence and context is everything, and both sides must be weighed against each other fairly. A second consideration of the course is the fact that this is a murder case subject to the same rules of evidence governing any other. The Kennedy assassination does not defy the laws of gravity in this sense. The evidence does not care who was the victim. The case rises and falls on the weight and probability of the evidence as it exists before us, not what it might tell us if the evidence that might exist, imaginary evidence, were the same thing as the actual evidence that we have. The first five units of the course concern the evidence, from the standards of evidence that ought to be applied, through the burden of proof that must be met, and finally, to the question of whether the evidence before us meets the burden of proof. A final unit will explore the question of motive. Not in order to answer that question, which will always be elusive, but to determine its degree of relevance, if any, to the question of the meaning of the evidence. You be the judge. Unit 1, November 22, 1963. What we saw. First Evidence, Dealey Plaza, November 22, 1963. We start at the beginning with the motorcade through Dealey Plaza in Dallas and the Zapruder film that captured most or all of the shooting sequence. 
You will have to analyze and weigh the evidence in the Kennedy assassination, and much of the first evidence occurred here. But do not make the mistake of thinking of the assassination and the Zapruder film as the same thing. Much of the important evidence was not captured by the Zapruder film, either because Zapruder was not pointing his camera at important places, like the sixth-floor window in the book depository building, or because the film was so blurry and poor in quality that it could not record some important evidence. To take one obvious example, it was a silent film, and therefore failed to capture the sound, number, and timing of the shots. We can't even assume that Zapruder actually captured the entire shooting sequence with his camera. After all, Oswald was not waiting for Zapruder to restart his camera before firing the first of his shots. The first evidence can be broken into a few categories. Ballistic evidence, bullets and shells, forensic evidence, fingerprints, for example, witness testimony, eyewitnesses and ear witnesses, evidence documenting Oswald's movements before and after the assassination, doctors' reports on Kennedy's wounds at Parkland Hospital, autopsy documentation, collected that day but analyzed later, and the behavior and the timing of the presidential limousine occupants that can be seen in the Zapruder film. Only the last involves the use of the iconic film that many incorrectly conflate with the assassination itself. After completing your reading of all five chapters of this unit, first evidence, read the documents within the unit in the order that they are displayed in the course, which roughly parallels the chronological order of the events described in each one. Cast a critical eye on each and every piece of evidence. How do we decide when a piece of evidence is credible? In other words, when and how do we decide that something of evidence actually reveals what it seems to reveal? How do we separate incorrect evidence from compelling evidence? What do we do when a witness contradicts others or even herself? Or when material evidence, such as ballistics, fingerprints, the Zapruder film, is contradictory? We will examine all of these questions, but to begin, familiarize yourself with the items of evidence in this unit and ponder this single question. Which of these items is most important to answering our questions about the Kennedy assassination and why? Near the end of a motorcade welcomed by warm crowds in Dallas, Texas, the presidential limousine carrying President Kennedy, Governor John Conley, and their wives entered Dealey Plaza, the last point on their drive through downtown Dallas. As the vehicle turned left onto Elm Street and straightened, many spectators could see both the president and, behind him, the Texas School Book Depository building. These included steamfitter Howard Brennan and a high school student, Amos Ewens. From the Book Depository building itself, up on the fifth floor, Harold Norman was looking down at the motorcade and the crowd. Norman was looking down at the president from the north side of Elm, and Brennan and Ewens were watching him at ground level from the south side of Elm. See map. Just as the presidential Lincoln straightened out at 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, a shot rang out. Most people did not recognize it as a shot. 
Many assumed that it was a motorcycle backfire, a firecracker, or a tire blowout. But these three witnesses were so close to the sound that they could more easily identify its location. All three looked up to where the shot seemed to come from. Brennan and Ewens looked up to the sixth-floor window on the east side of the building. Brennan saw both a rifle and a white man of about 30 years of age aiming for a final third shot. By the time Brennan looked up and located the source, the man had fired a second shot. Ewens also saw the man almost exactly at the same time as Brennan. But whereas Brennan could see more of the man, since he was directly opposite the window, Ewens could only see that the man was young, with a white, possibly bald spot on his head, and firing a rifle. Ewens' initial statement to police identified the man as a white man, but he testified to the Warren Commission that he was not sure on this point. Harold Norman could not see into the sixth-floor window at all, because he was directly below it on the fifth floor on the same side of the building. But given his proximity, he could tell that a shot was being fired from the floor above him. He could hear the sound of the rifle bolt being worked each time and the shell falling on the floor above him. Concrete from the old flooring also fell on his head. Norman heard three bolt clicks, three shots, and three shells landing on the floor above him. Read the affidavit from Harold Norman and the testimony from Amos Ewens and Howard Brennan. At about the time of the first shot, Patrolman Marion Baker was riding his motorcycle alongside the press portion of the motorcade and was turning onto Houston Street. One block directly in front of his position at that time was the Texas School Book Depository Building. Baker heard the third shot when he was midway down the Houston block separating Elm and Main. He saw pigeons flying off the roof of the Texas School Book Depository and assumed that the shots had come from the top of the building. He revved his engine, rounded the corner, and parked his motorcycle just past the depository, running back to the front entrance to try to get to the source of the shots as quickly as possible. Baker arrived at the entrance of the building about 23 seconds after the third shot. Just inside the entrance, he ran into building manager Roy Truly. Baker asked him to escort him to the roof. They ran to the elevator gate and struggled for a few seconds to call the elevator down. Realizing that it would not move from the upper floor, Baker asked Truly to take him to the nearest stairway. They ran there and ascended to the second floor landing. While Truly continued to race up the stairs, Baker noticed through a door on the landing leading into a lunch area, a man walking rapidly away from him. Baker dashed through the door and pointed at the man with his revolver, demanding that he stop. Seventy-three seconds had passed since the third shot. Meanwhile, Truly had returned to Baker's position on the second floor. The man whom Baker had stopped was Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald stared calmly and impassively at Baker and said nothing. Baker asked Truly if he knew the man. Truly, who had hired Oswald the previous month to fill book orders, answered affirmatively, He works here. Baker turned and asked Truly to follow him up the stairs again. 
Accounts of this encounter took some time to sort out, leading to subsequent confusion. Neither Baker nor Truly claimed that Oswald was in the process of purchasing a Coke when he was stopped, as the video in the unit suggests. In a deposition later, Baker said Oswald was already holding a Coke when Baker first saw him. But Baker almost immediately recalled that he had read that a witness, Mrs. J.A. Reed, reported seeing Oswald with a nearly full Coke at about this time. Realizing almost immediately that he was conflating her reported memory with his, he quickly crossed out the Coke reference from the deposition and initialed his name by the change. In his later testimony, he made clear that Oswald had no Coke and was not in the process of buying one when he stopped him. If Baker was correct... Oswald was not stopping to buy a Coke in the lunchroom when Baker spotted him, which would be consistent with Baker's memory that Oswald was walking quickly away from his position when Baker first spotted him. After Baker and Truly turned and continued to ascend the steps, Oswald, now alone, must have decided to buy a Coke because moments later he was seen passing through the depository offices by Mrs. Reed with a nearly full bottle of Coke in his hand. She mentioned to him that shots had been fired at the president and that she had just returned from watching the parade. Maybe they didn't hit him, she said. He mumbled something unintelligible and kept walking. Most of the depository workers were still outside. It was also unusual for any of the young men to visit the secretarial offices but Oswald's path was the quickest route from the lunchroom in the northwest corner of the building to the front door entrance in the southeast corner. Even counting the seconds when Baker stopped Oswald, he made it out the front door within three minutes of the final shot. It would be two more minutes before police arrived to seal the exits. Oswald was next seen on Elm Street some seven blocks east of the Texas School Book Depository, boarding a bus for Oak Cliff, where he lived. A former landlady of his, Mary Bledsoe, happened to be on the bus and recognized Oswald, with his shirt sleeve out and looking like a maniac, she said. The bus was supposed to travel west, back to, and past the depository building, but quickly became stuck in traffic due to the arrival of police at the depository. Oswald did not wait, but asked for a transfer got off the bus, and walked a few short blocks to the Greyhound station where a cab stand was located. Oswald later admitted to police that he hailed a cab and was taken to his residence in Oak Cliff by about 12.50 p.m. It was the first time Oswald had ridden a cab in the United States. Curiously, Oswald did not direct the cab driver to his actual destination, his rooming house on Beckley Street, but rather to a corner several blocks south of it on Beckley. After the cab left, he then walked back to the house and entered in a hurry, according to the homeowner's representative, Erlene Roberts, who addressed him briefly. Within less than five minutes, about 1.03 p.m., Oswald had gone to his tiny room just steps from the entrance, grabbed a jacket and a pistol, which he placed under his belt, and left the rooming house, all without saying a word. Mrs. Roberts then thought she saw him waiting for a bus across the street, 
but the next time she looked a moment later, he was gone. Oswald had time enough to walk the seven blocks south to 10th Street in seven to ten minutes, where he was spotted next by Officer J.D. Tippett. Tippett was patrolling the area with the suspect description provided by Howard Brennan. Tippett decided to stop Oswald, either because he matched the description or because he was acting suspiciously, or both. The time was between 1.10 p.m. and 1.13 p.m. Tippett initially exchanged words with Oswald through the passenger window from the sidewalk side of the car, but then exited the vehicle to question Oswald further. As Tippett rounded the front bumper to reach Oswald on the sidewalk, no less than four individuals saw Oswald pull out a gun and shoot Tippett three times. Horrified, these witnesses saw Oswald slowly round the rear of the car, walk to the front behind Tippett, and fire a bullet into the officer's head to ensure that he was dead. Oswald then walked quickly west on 10th in the direction of downtown Oak Cliff, emptying his gun of his spent cartridges as two more witnesses got a good look at him from a close distance. One, Mrs. Helen Markham, who had witnessed the shooting and who identified him in a police lineup later that day, was only steps away as Oswald walked by, staring blankly at her. Other witnesses saw Oswald turn right on 10th and Patton toward Jefferson Avenue, leading to downtown Oak Cliff, just a few blocks west. He was next spotted downtown, hiding in an alcove of a shoe store, by the salesman inside, Johnny Brewer. Brewer thought Oswald was trying to hide from the police car screaming past. After some patrol cars raced by, traveling east, Brewer saw Oswald look around the corner of the alcove and continue west, walking toward and less than a block away from the Texas Theater. Brewer decided to follow him. He saw Oswald dash into the theater without pain when the attention of the ticket seller, Julia Postal, was diverted opposite the location where Oswald had been standing. Brewer notified Postal, who had just heard on the radio, that police were looking for a suspect in Oak Cliff. Postal and Brewer agreed that she should call police and that he would monitor the theater's rear exit. By 1.45 p.m., police were converging on both the front and rear exits of the theater. Brewer met them in back and pointed Oswald's location in the theater out from behind the curtain as the house lights were turned on. Oswald made an attempt to exit surreptitiously out the front, but slunk back to his seat when he saw police entering the main auditorium from all sides. Moments later, Officer M.A. McDonald asked Oswald to stand and move to search him. He said that Oswald then shouted, Well, it's all over now, then struck him in the face and drew his pistol, squeezing the trigger in McDonald's direction. McDonald interposed his hand between the trigger and the firing pin, and the gun did not go off. After a brief fight in which police gave as good as they got, Oswald was handcuffed and led from the theater. Consider the following list of facts and whether these were mere coincidences of an innocent nature or signs of consciousness of guilt. 1. A rifle discovered on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository right after the assassination 
was traced to a money order signed by A. Hidel, a pseudonym of Oswald's that was also found on a fake ID card in his wallet at the time of his arrest. 2. Oswald's palm print was found on the rifle, further tying him to the murder weapon. 3. Oswald, the most politically aware and obsessed employee in the depository, was the only Texas School Book Depository employee who was not watching the motorcade and who left the scene of the crime, strangely uninterested in what had happened to the wounded president. 4. The timing of a walk from the southeast corner of the building down the steps from the sixth floor to the second floor lunchroom matched almost exactly the amount of time, 73 seconds, Baker took to get to that second floor after hearing the third shot. 5. Oswald had tried to shoot General Edwin Walker on April 10th with his rifle and had escaped back to his residence by taking a bus. He thus had a demonstrated capacity to attempt a killing. Sixth, as mentioned, Oswald had never ridden a cab before in the U.S. Seven, he did not ask Baker why he was pointing a gun at him, did not pursue the matter of the crime of the century with Mrs. Reed, and did not say a word to the cab driver who asked him if he knew why there were so many police cars in the area. 8. Why did he get out of the cab blocks past his rooming house unless it was to make it impossible for the driver later to reveal the destination of his passenger? 9. Oswald's killing of Tippett and its aftermath, witnessed by seven people, of whom the majority identified Oswald in police lineups later that day, was the ultimate act displaying consciousness of guilt. 10. He tried to kill another officer in the Texas theater, an example of attempted suicide by cop. If he were innocent of the killings of JFK and of Tippett, why would he want to do that within little more than an hour after the president was assassinated? 11. Why did he say as he squeezed the trigger in the Texas theater, well, it's all over now? Who does these things if they are innocent? Do these appear to be the actions of an innocent man? All of these curious actions occurred within 80 minutes of the third shot. Of course, they make perfect sense if Oswald was involved in the assassination of the president.